Good morning. <laughs> you guys doing well? Outstanding. This is our Braveheart teaching series, Courage in a World of Compromise. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Judges chapter 6 is where we are. We're spending the summer in the book of Judges. Changes that last is the title of this weekend's message. This uh, chapter is the beginning of another Judges cycle. How many remember the cycle that we see through the book of Judges? I won't ask you to come up and go through it, but uh, let, me, let me remind you of the cycle. It starts with, with complacency, and the complacency goes to compromise, because when we're complacent about a relationship with God, inevitably it's going to lead to compromise. Compromise is going to lead to crisis. Crisis is going to lead to crying out to God. God sends a judge. That's what the book of Judges is about, a rescuer. And then it re they return to covenant renewal. And then they go through that cycle over and over again. And so this chapter, chapter 6, is the beginning of another judge's cycle. And uh, this time the cycle will cover three chapters. We're going to spend the next three weeks in the life of Gideon. How many remember the life of Gideon? Yes, uh, less graphic than... Uh, the previous judges, but uh, practical nonetheless. The narrative gives us opportunity to look at the particular details of, of the cycles so that we can have uh, changes that last, preventing these cycles in our own lives. Take a look at your sermon notes, and I've got a couple questions here for you as we begin our study. If you had to describe how God loves you right now, what would you write, and what role would your circumstances play? If I were to come to you and you were to write this out or we were to dialogue about the love of God in your life, how would you define his love working in your life right now? And what role would circumstances play? There are two really, really important questions you, uh, you should be asking in your life pretty regularly. God, what are you up to? What are you doing? And then, God, how should I be responding? How should I be responding to what you are doing? I gave you a hint of what he's doing there in Philippians 1, 6 and Romans 8, 28 through 29. But if you tend to think that God is loving you less when life is hard, which we all tend to do, by the way, we kind of think, well, where are you, God? Life is really, really getting hard here. Where are you? And you're going to see Gideon does the same thing, and we all tend to do that. But if you tend to think that God is loving you less when life is hard, then this passage of Scripture will, will challenge and redefine what we think about the love of God in the context of, of changes that last. God, that's what he wants to do in our lives. Let's begin with a word of prayer before we dive into this text and unpack these notes. Would you bow your heads with me once again? Father God, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. We love your presence. We love spending time with you. We love studying your word. You not only justify us, but you sanctify us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would continue to bring changes that last in our lives, making us more and more whole and more holy, devoted to you in every area of our lives so that we can let our light shine before others and seeing our good deeds, they will give glory to you, our Father who is in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. Let's begin reading chapter six, verse one. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's a, that's a common phrase right there. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. We talked about what evil is. Evil is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water, 
Christ for broken cisterns that have no water, that run dry. That's uh, Jeremiah 2.13. There's other definitions of, of that evil. And notice what it says. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves, things get pretty drastic here, they made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. So these people ran from their homes and they're living up in the mountains like kind of like wild animals, just trying to preserve their lives. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number, innumerable using that kind of parable or that word picture, both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Stop there just for a minute. Uh, suffering has a way of, of humbling us. It has a way of blowing the cover on our denial and driving you into God, giving you resources you never knew you had and never knew you needed. That's what's happening right here in this story. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, cried out for help to the Lord. So you can see the cycle here. They had complacency, compromise, crisis. That invites crisis. They're crying out to God. Now that's where we are in, in this cycle. So, so God's people have abandoned their homes and cities. They're living in mountain caves like fearful animals. Their crops and livestock that are needed for survival are being consistently devoured by their enemies. And so immediately, I mean, we're tempted to ask, and we'll see uh, Gideon certainly asking this question, where's God's love? I thought this, this was God's people. What's going on in this story? I thought that he was, where's his covenant faithfulness? That, that he had some sort of a covenant relationship with these people. You know, where's his goodness? And then look back at verse 1, and we see that this is really, and the Lord, the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven Years. This is a response of a God of love working to turn their hearts back to him. This is a demonstration of his love. And so right off the bat, we're already seeing redefined for us the love of God working in their behalf. And um, let's continue reading. And when the people, verse 7, and when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Stop there just for a minute before we continue reading on. What? A, a prophet? He sends a prophet to them? The people are crying out for help and God sends a prophet. That's like being in a severe auto accident and calling 911 and the alarm room sends a driving instructor <laughs> instead of a paramedic. That's odd. That's awkward. God sends a sermon rather than a savior. 
That's crazy. Why is that? Why would he do that? Because God wants them to understand why they're in the trouble they're in. Remember the, the two, two important questions is that we've got to ask ourselves, what, God, what are you up to and how should I be responding to this? I mean, we get really sidetracked because we're not aware of what he's up to in our lives and we, we misdefine his love for us. And so certainly what we've got to do here is we've got to, when we go through suffering, we've got to ask ourselves, is this suffering as a result of my disobedience? Oh, by the way, you can also have suffering in result of your obedience. You know that. The Bible talks about that. So you've got to know the difference. You've got to know the difference and know what God's up to in your suffering. So it can come as a result of your disobedience. It can come as a result of your obedience also. By following God. That can be part of his plan for your life and what's going on. And we live in a fallen world. The book of Job is evidence of that. And... Uh, and so let me give you, uh, here's the first, first kind of big idea as we talk about changes that last. This is what we need to keep in mind as it relates to, to what God is up to in our lives. Uh, in fact, let me continue reading here. Let me read the rest of the text here. And the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said, notice what the prophet said. He said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. So he's telling, he's really re telling them, reminding them, trying to blow away their spiritual amnesia of all of his grace that he has poured into their lives. And obviously the Old Testament picture of Egyptian bondage is New Testament understanding of our being set free from our being enslaved to sin. And so there's some wonderful parallels here. And in verse 9, he says, And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. This is the land of milk and honey. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So there we see the result of their suffering is because their disobedience in the face of God's unbelievable grace. Here's your point on your notes. God is far more concerned with our holiness than our happiness. He's more concerned with our character than our comfort. Now, now, lest you start thinking that, well, God just wants to give me a bad time and, and he's all about uh, that. I, I, it's, yeah, it's much, I'll be happier out in the world than what I am with him, but I'm going to endure it just so that I can make it to heaven. That's not true. That's absolute, absolutely not true. In fact, notice their next point. He wants for you far more than you could ever dream or imagine. The tendency is that we tend to cling to with almost a death grip onto temporal things as if we can't live without those things and he wants to open our hands from those temporal things that we are clinging to so that we can receive the eternal, that which transcends the temporal that will actually give us what we need to get through the temporal, the losses and because the losses are inevitable. We live in a fallen world. And so he's trying to give them something richer, deeper, more meaning. Something that transcends the temporal. So we see that in verse 1. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And then he sends a prophet. By the way, you know this, but we have to be reminded of this. I have to be reminded of this regularly. Newsflash, God is not working to deliver to you your personal definition of happiness. We need to be reminded of that. When you are tempted to think that God is loving you less because your life is hard, he's actually loving you more to give you more of himself. 
He's wanting to give you more of himself because you, you have made some choices. Remember what he said here. You fear the gods of this culture more so than the god of this world. The, the idea of fear is awe and wonder. You're more in awe and wonder of the cultural gods than you are of the true and living God. And so he's trying to bring our hearts back, back to him. We cry out for God to change our circumstances, and there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, is that oftentimes we're so preoccupied with that that we don't realize he's trying to change us through our circumstances. He's trying to do a much deeper work. That's why we got to go back to those questions. God, what are you up to? And how should I be responding to this? And, and, and this is what he's ultimately trying to do. Here's the next point in your notes. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That's, that's actually a quote from 2 Corinthians 7, 10. And then verse 11 kind of gives us more details to that. And so God sends a sermon to bring the people to true repentance. The crying out of verses 6 through 7 is not a sign of real repentance. In fact, their history is strong evidence of this in the first five chapters. It's not true repentance. So here's what I want you to do real quick. Turn to the person next to you and see if you guys know the difference. Because as Christians, we really need to know the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. What is the difference between godly grief, worldly grief? It kind of, it's kind of in that verse there, hint, hint. It's right there in that verse. It kind of tells you a little bit, but it's, but it's obviously you've got to think through the implications of what those words mean. Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Okay, you guys stumped on that? You guys, uh, I hear a little discussion out there, but some of you are just uh, kind of looking at me with those, <laughs> those faraway looks in your eye. It's like, yeah, what the heck is he talking about? Where am I this morning? <laughs> It's past 100 degrees and I can't even think straight. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah, you got to know the difference between the two. The, uh, both are characterized by deep sorrow and distress, but worldly sorrow doesn't produce lasting change. Godly sorrow does. So if you're really serious about uh, lasting change in your life, you got to know the difference. How many have things in your life you'd like to change? Come on, everybody should be raising their hands. In fact, we all should be raising both hands. Because you're in denial. If you don't have something that you need to change, just ask the people sitting around you. They'll tell you. <laughs> ask your spouse. They've got a whole list of things for you. I know my wife, she's been working on this list for 30 some odd years. And one item on that list is I keep forgetting how long we've been married. <laughs> I mean, so, so just, and there's a, we all have a list. If you don't think you have a list, hang out with us for a while. We'll help you to develop a list. <laughs> I mean, I, when I read the Bible, I, I put more items on that list. I'm just like, well, there's another one. Now I know what you're doing, God. I need to start responding to that now more appropriately. See, so that's the, that's the difference. Godly grief really is going to lead to, to lasting change. God, uh, worldly grief is pain. It's really, it, it goes like this. Worldly grief is sorrow over the pain my sin has caused me versus godly, God, this godly grief or godly sorrow is the pain my sin has caused God that I'm trampling on his love and wisdom. Does that make sense? And did you notice it says that for godly grief produces repentance, which is life change, that leads to salvation. Wow, fullness of life in Christ? Yeah, that leaves no regret. Why would it leave no, no regret? 
Because the thing that I thought I couldn't live without, yeah, of course I can live without because I've got him. But, but that's why worldly grief has regret because I don't have what I most want and that's not God. It's this thing that God is saying, you don't need that, you need me. Does that make sense? I mean, that's, that's part of this, uh, really this understanding. And by the way, you know, as you kind of work through this, is that you've got to discern the difference between normal lapses and stuck points on the road to maturity. Now think about that. We all have normal lapses, but are there stuck points in your life? They're like every two months, it could be every couple weeks, or it could be every couple months, or it could be every six months, or every year, or year and a half. You go into this deep, dark depression. What is that about? Or you just kind of blow up. Or you have a meltdown. Or you fall off the wagon. Whatever that wagon might be. You go through this crazy cycle. Have you recognized that in your life? Is that a normal lapse? Or do you keep returning back to that same lapse, which would be a a stuck point? And that's why we need godly friends and leaders who keep us from, from either despair or denial about the progress we are making. Despair? Yeah, sometimes you get really frustrated because you feel like you're not making any progress and people in your life can point it out and say, no, no, I see progress in your life. That's wonderful. And they can applaud you and they can encourage you in that. But then sometimes we're in denial and we need people to blow the cover on that denial that we think that we're actually making progress when, when in reality we're not. And they can say, I don't see any progress. That's harsh, isn't it? I mean, that was one of the first lessons I learned in, in marriage, in my marriage so my wife said, no, nah, I'm not making any progress. You're going back, dude. <laughs> yeah, but we've been married for like 20 years. I mean, we've been married a long time, and she's still like, I don't see any progress. I go, wow, that's, that's a heartbreak. I'm obviously not getting it, am I? And, uh, and so that's, that's all part of this. Now, next point, this is what should motivate. This is what should drive this change. We don't obey him to get his blessing. We have his incalculable blessing, therefore we obey him. Did you see the gospel in this text? He goes through and says, hey, look at all the things that I've done by my grace. And yet, and yet you've, trampled, you've trampled on my grace. It's verses eight through 10. In essence, he's saying, I have redeemed you. I've reconciled you to me. I've enriched your life. I've brought you into the promised land. I haven't turned my back on you, but you have turned your back on me. Everybody look up here just for a minute. Don't spend, don't spend your time questioning God's faithfulness towards you. That's where we're all preoccupied. Where's God in all of this? What what is he doing? Don't question his faithfulness. He will never, ever leave you or forsake you. He never, ever will. Be more concerned about your unfaithfulness towards him because that's the big issue here. He says, look at all of these things I've done for you. You've turned your back on me. That's the bigger issue. That's what he's saying here. I mean, it's pretty pretty hard-hitting. When you look at that, spend your spiritual energy on your own faithfulness. I love uh, the, the story of the prodigal sons. Remember the two sons that were prodigal, extravagant? Uh, it actually should be a prodigal father because he was the one that was more extravagant. But the, you got the one son who takes his uh, inheritance and goes out and, and blows it on prostitutes and wild living. And here's what's so amazing about that story. I just love it. It's, it's, it's breathtaking. It wasn't the son's repentance that brought the father's love. It was the father's love that brought the repentance. (laughs) I love that. 
the son ran into his arms, the father's arms, and it literally says there in the 15th chapter of Luke, in the Greek it says, and, he, and the daddy smothered him with kisses. After all he did, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the love of God. See, and that's when you know your heart's being transformed because worldly grief is motivated out of fear and pride. It's extrinsic motivation. But godly grief is intrinsic. It's a heart smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Major difference. Major difference. Let's continue reading verses 11 through 18. By the way, we won't get completely through this text, and uh, we've got a lot to cover, but... I'll certainly give you all the fill in the blanks as we work through this, but now we got the call of Gideon in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and said under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiazrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. You don't beat out wheat in a winepress. That seems weird, but because he's hiding He's hiding, and the angel of the Lord, this is not an angel of the Lord, this is the angel of the Lord. Who is this? Anybody? This is Christ. This is a Christophany. This is Jesus in the Old Testament. Pretty fascinating. So the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, check this out. The Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. That's funny, because he's anything but a mighty man of valor. He's like hiding in a wine press. Uh, they're going to get us. The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. What? You talking to me? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a little bit of the idea here. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Oh, there it is. Where's God? Why is life so hard? He must not love me. Uh-oh. Well, don't go there. And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. Oh, stop there just for a minute. How many have ever felt forsaken by God? Show of hands. Don't worry, you're not going to get struck by lightning in here. We've got a protective dome over this place right here, okay? <laughs> Lightning cannot come through here, okay? Actually, that's crazy, but <laughs> I don't even know why I said that. But uh, it's not true. He can strike you with lightning any place, any time, but he won't, okay? Because uh, that's just being honest with him, and I've felt the same. And let me just remind you, he will never, ever leave you or forsake you. And even when we say, I feel forsaken, hey, I haven't forsaken you. See, that's what's going on. The Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, no, notice this. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? That's pretty significant. Don't you understand? Midian, uh, Gideon, Gideon, Midian, Gideon, Gideon, don't you understand your identity? Don't you understand what I've said to you? You're not living in, in, you're not in touch with the reality of who I am and what I'm doing in your life. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. He repeats that again. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign 
that is in that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Stop there just for a minute. Let me give you a couple more thoughts here. So, so we're talking about changes that last and we talked about God's really concerned about our holiness, our wholeness, which is better by far than anything we could ever find in, in this world, in creation. And of course, we've got to understand this idea of godly grief and then uh, that we obey him, not because we get his blessing, but because we have his blessing. And now we're talking about our identity. And, and what we see in this story is that Gideon has a fear problem. He's beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites, verse 11. He has a faith problem, theological problem. It looks like God has forsaken us. God is loving us less because life is hard, is basically his... His attitude here, verse 13, and then he's got a family problem. My clan is the weakest and I am the least in my father's house. Here's your next fill in the blank. Our identity isn't what we have done or what has been done to us or of our own choosing, but it is what our creator says we are is what our creator says we are. You can't live without an identity. Everybody has an identity. We build our identity on something. Identity basically answers life's most basic questions such as why am I here? Where am I going? What is the purpose of life? You can't exist without some form of identity. You live with some kind of purpose. And so what he's saying here and what we need to understand as the scripture teaches is don't build your identity on something that's temporal. Don't build it on your family or the fact that you're a parent or your marriage or any of those things because those are all subject to change. And if those are unstable, then your identity is unstable. And you're not going to be able to respond to those things appropriately. But if your identity is built on your child of God, you're creating the image of God, you're to live for his glory, then you're going to have what it takes with these lesser identities of marriage and parenting and job and, and all these other things. That's part of this, this idea. I love the Bible. It gives us just a lot of great identity statements. Here's one, for instance, in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That means that you belong to God, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the Bible, that's why I love reading the Bible because there's just tons of identity statements like that. I, I, you know, it recalibrates my, my mind, my heart, my life and who I am. Because it's so easy to get drawn away and distracted by all the stuff in our lives. But notice Gideon's response. Verse 15, and Gideon said to him, my clan is the weakest and I am the least in my father's house. And you'll notice that the angel of the Lord doesn't refute Gideon. Angel of the Lord doesn't say, come on, Gideon, you're a good guy. Really deep inside, yeah, we, we, everybody knows you're a good guy. You, you have a champion in you. He didn't say that. He didn't say, Gideon, come on, come on, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, Gideon. Come on, Gideon, come on, Gideon, you can do it. You can do whatever you set your mind to do, Gideon. Or how about this one? Gideon, you just need to believe in yourself. You don't, you don't see that in the text. You know how pervasive that is in our culture today? And not just in our, in our secular culture, in our church culture. You can go to churches here in the valley and that, you're going to get a dose of that. You can do it. You can do it. It's all about you anyway. They would say that, but that's what they mean. And, and, uh, and it even goes much deeper than that. And by the way, I, I, there's no doubt human, the human spirit is very, you know, resilient, resilient. 
because God made it that way. So whatever we're able to accomplish, you know, in our own human, with our own human spirit and ingenuity has been given to us by God. But there's a life that we can live that transcends that. It's a supernatural kind of life that he invites us into. But this whole idea of that you can do it, you just need to believe in yourself, goes much deeper than that. The underlying cultural narrative is that we are our own authority. And we could call it sovereign self or expressive individualism belief. Here's what uh, Tim Keller, in a recent article reviewing two books written by authors who claim to be Christian and embrace, the, the, embrace same-sex relationships. Now, he's refuting that. He's just saying, well, that's not what the Bible says, but they're saying that the Bible actually says that, that it's okay. And, um, and this is what he says. The reason that homosexual relationships, and, and might I add, might I add uh, Bruce Jenner and transgender issues to that? Oh, and might I add, you might not struggle with uh, same-sex attractions, but guess what? All of us struggle with desires within our life that are outside of God's will for our lives according to God's word. Would you, would you agree with that? So I'm not, I'm not beating up on anybody. I'm just telling you what is true about all of us. We all struggle with desires. And you know as well as I know that if you would have fed those desires early on in your life, entertained them and fed them, you, you know the path those things would take you on. And the Bible makes it very clear that we have, we have sinful desires but this is what he says. He says, the reason that homosexual relationships make so much more sense to people today than in previous times is because they have absorbed late modern Western culture's narratives about the human life. Our society presses its members to believe you have to be yourself. That sexual desires are crucial to personal identity, that any curbing of strong sexual desires leads to psychological damage, and that individuals should be free to live as they alone see fit. If I would have done that early on in, in my marriage, I wouldn't be married. No telling where my kids would be and what they would be doing. And I wouldn't be pastoring this church. If I, if I lived out of that principle based on my desires that I have within my own wicked heart. I mean, this, this, is, this sounds familiar to Judges. You guys familiar with the, the key verse to Judges? Judges 21, 25, the whole book ends with the, these words. And it says it a few times throughout the book. But it says, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, that's, that's expressive individualism. That's sovereign self. That's, we are our own authority. And, and by the way, it was interesting that when uh, I saw some of the articles on Bruce Jenner, he said that when the picture in Vogue magazine comes out, I will be free. And my heart broke. I was brokenhearted over that. Because you and I know, based on the truth of God's word, that freedom isn't found in doing and being whatever we want to do or be. Freedom is found in doing and being what we were created to do and be by our creator, our divine designer. And only in him do we find true freedom. We were created to enjoy the riches of God's glory and to be what he's called us to be and to do what he has called us to do. 
And only there will we find un unbelievable freedom. I'm telling you, I have found unbelievable freedom. I'm so happy that I didn't take those paths early on in the marriage. My wife and I were near divorce. There were some things, you know, inside of my own heart that if I could, I could have chased those easily. I wanted to chase those desires. And yet they were outside of God's directives. But that's the society we live in. We applaud it even. We just go, oh yeah, that's wonderful. That's the culture we live in. And um, notice what he's really saying here. He's really telling uh, Gideon that all the acceptance, security, and significance, all the meaning and love and purpose and satisfaction you'll ever need are found in, in those five words, the Lord is with you. Not in the other five words, oh mighty man of valor. We, we like those, but we don't necessarily like the first ones. But the, but the second set of five words are predicated upon the first set of five words. So our identity isn't what we have done or what has been done to us or of our own choosing. Does that make sense now? But it is what our creator says, says we are. It's what our creator says we are. And, and if we believe... What he wants us to do, look at the next point. We are called to live with a sense of destiny and be the presence and the power of God in our generation. Verse 13, if the Lord is with us, Gideon says, where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? In other words, God, if you're with us, why aren't you doing wonderful things like what you did for our parents? Notice God's response. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save your people. Do I, do not I send you? In other words, this is how God was responding. God is saying, I am doing something wonderful and you, Gideon, are to be my presence and power in this generation. And he's saying that to us this morning, and you, D. Beer, are to be my presence and power in this generation. I am doing something. I am doing something. The tendency is for us to, to ask, God, why, why aren't you doing something in my family or on my campus or on my job or in my community? God's response, I am. I am. You are the answer to that prayer, the conduit of my power and presence to this lost and dying world. In fact, I believe he's saying something even much richer and deeper here. Not just to Gideon. By the way, these words are to us. He's, he's saying to us this morning through this text, I am with you, almighty woman or man of valor. Don't you understand that? I am with you. And in fact, I believe what he's saying to Gideon and he's saying to us that the greatest days of my spiritual outpouring are not behind you, but ahead of you. So he said, quit looking in the past, start looking ahead. I'm doing something right now and I want to do it through your life. Greater things are ahead. Now, let's continue reading verses 19 through 27 because Gideon's a mess. That's our lives. We struggle in so many different ways. And so, so Gideon went into his house, prepared a young goat in unleavened cakes from the ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in, in, in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes 
And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. Wow. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Boop. He's out of there. It's like, what was that all about? I mean, can you imagine being there with, with Gideon? It's like, what, what just happened? All that offering that I just laid out there, just boom, disintegrated. And then the angel's gone. Then Gideon, Gideon pursued or perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Oh my goodness, I'm in the very presence of God. See, that's what's going on here. Now, before we read these next words, you need to understand this is, these are powerful words. You're going to see in this, these two attributes of God kind of collide. These two natures of God, his, his love and law collide here. And it's giving us a picture because in a little bit, uh, Gideon's going to make a sacrifice. And you guys know Old Testament sacrifices are a picture of the, of the ultimate sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus. And in that sacrifice, you see this collision of law and love. You see this happening. You see the fulfillment. You see the satisfaction of God's, God's love and God's law. God's law? Yeah, God is justice and holy. He's a holy God, and he demands payment for sins. So he's not going to uh, violate that aspect of his nature, nor will he violate the aspect of his nature of his love. His love and his desire is to, for us to be reconciled to him, to justify us. So how do those work? And, and, and oh, by the way, this, there's this contradiction that almost seems this paradox that happens throughout Scripture. It's like, so is God's covenant love, is it, is it conditional or is it unconditional? What's going on here? How is this going to work its way out? I mean, God could have easily struck, struck him dead because of his holiness and, and, and Gideon's sinfulness. And, and how does that all work out? Well, we all know that it works out because in hindsight, we know that, that God sent his son Jesus to meet the conditions of the law so that you and I could be loved unconditionally. So see, listen to this as we read this. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. He knew he was going to die. I came face to face with a holy God. I'm sinful. I'm sinful. I deserve judgment. But notice God doesn't bring judgment here. Notice what Gideon does. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. Literally, his, his name, Yahweh, is Shalom. It's beautiful. See, it's God that built the bridge across the chasm of sin that separated me from him. And it's looking ahead to his son that did that for us. And so God's justice and his love are both satisfied in God through the cross. That's the wonder of the cross. We're going to take communion. And that's what it represents. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And so Gideon says, the Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull. So this is kind of, here's that sacrifice that I was talking about. Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down 
the Ashereth that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here which with stones laid in due order then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him but because he was too afraid so he's still dealing with fear this is that's you and I even after all that we've experienced in Christ we still struggle with fear oh what do, you know we're worried about what people think or say or oh what if I lose my job what am I going to do and oh you know all these things and and he's still struggling so Gideon took Ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Here, let me give you a couple more fill in the blanks. We're, we're almost we're gonna wrap this up real quick, but here's here's what it is. All of all of our questions, doubts, and fears are ultimately answered in God's disclosure of himself. Exodus 33, 18 through 20. Uh, remember Moses? He's saying, Show us your glory. Show us your glory. And here's what Moses was saying there in Exodus 33. God, we would rather have your presence, we'd rather have your glory and wander around in the wilderness than to go into the promised land without it. Do you understand what he's saying? He said, what we have in you is better by far than anything we could ever have in this world. I love the story of Job. Remember Job? When he gets to the end of the book after losing everything and he's been struggling with this, God, where are you, where are you, where are you, what's going on in my life? He has these miserable comforters that come alongside of him that don't help him. And it's a mess. He gets to the end of the story and he has this encounter with God that words cannot describe. And he says, I used to, I had heard of him, but now I've seen him. And now I've seen him. Job never saw why he suffered, but he saw God. And that was enough. See, see if, we could, if we could just encounter God, the God of the Bible, through our studies regularly, that would be enough. I was thinking of some of these songs that we sang today. Did you hear the words of those songs? The one, Hosanna. When we see you, we find strength to face the day. In your presence, all of our fears are washed away. Yes! That's what we need. Show us your glory. God, we want to see you. We want to experience you in our lives. The, the song, Sinking Deep, your love so deep is washing over me. Did you have a sense of that while we were singing these songs? I hope you did. I did. I was back in the booth. I had a sense of that as we were going through these songs. Your face is all I seek. You are my everything. Yeah. I love it. What would your life be like if you really believed that and you walked with a sense of his presence that he will never, ever leave you or forsake you? What would it be like? How would you respond to the circumstances you're currently responding to? So it goes back to those questions. God, what are you up to? How do I need to be responding? Pretty important stuff. Next thing, revival starts in our, heart, in our life, in home by identifying and replacing our idols. And you see this in verses 25 through 27. Gideon's first assignment was to get rid of the idols, the counterfeit gods in his father's house. See, before the gospel can, can have an impact through me in this world around me, it must have an impact in me. See, what I'm inviting you to isn't something that I'm not experiencing. I want to experience this as much as I want you to experience this. Does that make sense? And so I'm dealing with my own idols as I'm kind of helping you to look and see your idols. And so that's what he's doing. That's why he's starting in his own home and he's working through this. Now, 
I'll let you read the rest of the story on your own, verses 28 through 40, but let me give you just a, a quick brief summary of it. Verses 28 through 35, Gideon's life is threatened because he dealt with the idols in that, in that little town, and so his life is threatened by the men of the town, but his father defends him, and then Gideon rallies his people against, against their enemies, and then this chapter ends with the famous fleece. How many are familiar with the famous fleece, Gideon's fleece? How many are familiar with that? Okay, everybody look up here. Look up here. This fleece, this fleece, this sign of the fleece is not a principle for decision making and the will of God. Do you understand that? Shake your head like this. Yes, we do. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, I just put out a fleece. God, if you want me to marry this gal, may I make this half-court shot? And after about 10 times of shooting, sure enough, it went in. <laughs> Praise God. I actually heard a guy say that. He was actually using that. So there's these crazy fleeces, and, and this has nothing to do with decision-making in the will of God. It has everything to do with his lack of assurance. In fact, he even says to God in verse 39, let not your anger burn against me. This is not a good thing. He's lacking assurance. By the way, in your decision-making process, there's a whole list of things you need to be thinking about before you make decisions, such as God's Word, the Word of God, the people of God hanging out with other Christians and getting their advice. How about the Spirit of God working within us, understanding His voice and hearing His voice? How about the wisdom of God, a lot of wisdom in this book? And then how about the providence of God, opening closed doors? And there's a, there's a whole list of things. And there's nothing wrong with asking for assurance. But you need to be working through the list of items that the Bible spells out for us as it relates to decision-making in the will of God. And so this really has to do more with assurance. And so here's the last point. Nothing brings lasting change and confidence like the assurance that God is for us and not against us. That's what Gideon's struggling with. I mean, see, he goes to God and says, okay, God, okay, if you're going to work in my life, then when I wake up in the morning, may there be moisture on the fleece, but the ground be dry. And so God does it. He accommodates him. And then he wakes, and then after that he goes, okay, 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 that's not enough. How about the next day? How about the ground be dry and the, uh, or the ground be wet and the fleece be dry? How about that, God? That's what he does. It's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> God showed up to you and you shoot and you still lack assurance? Yeah. That's you and I. We're Gideon. We struggle. And yet God's there with him. And so, verses 36 through 40 how do I know that we can trust God with our lives? We have something better than a wet fleece. What do we have? We have Jesus. We have the cross. We're going to take communion. We're going to take communion right now, the cross. Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? His perfect love chases away all of the fears. That's what we need to do is we need to be made perfect in his love, 1 John 4, 18. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray. Father, our tendency is to think that you love us less when life is hard, but nothing could be further from the truth. You are working to make us wholly devoted to you, giving to us a deeper and more durable joy in you, our creator, than anything we could ever find in creation. It's your goodness, it's your fatherly love that leads us to repentance, bringing changes that last. Because you are with us, may we be mighty men and women of valor, living our lives with a sense of destiny, 
bringing your presence and power to this lost and dying world. Show us your glory, God. Show us your glory. The answer to all of our questions, doubts, and fears. Help us to identify anything we are adding to you for our happiness. Thank you for the assurance of the cross that you are for us and not against us.